Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today we take on the Green New Deal and ask, is green growth malignant? We open with This Wind by Christian Matson, performing as the tallest man on earth. Nobody knew what the raven would do. Matson remains our troubadour throughout via songs off of his 2008 release, Shallow Grave. Like a dog set on wheels, you will load down the street. Today, independent producer and interchange contributor Dan Young interviews Don Fitz and Stan Cox, two longtime environmental activists and writers. As the building's too high, you know nothing about time. But an arrow just brushing your chin. You said, damn, be this wind, it's still moving on in. For many years, both Fitz and Cox have advocated that solving not just global warming, but other major environmental crises will require an overall reduction in the size of the economy and industrial production. Now they're concerned that the Green New Deal recently introduced into the U.S. Congress is premised in major expansion of industry and the economy. Fitz and Cox feel that this so-called green growth would be unlikely to stop global warming and would only worsen numerous other global environmental crises. Though they support a rapid changeover to renewable energy coupled with economically egalitarian reforms, they believe this needs to come along with a major reduction in industrial production. Some of the potential changes they talk about include a shorter work week and new regulations aimed at eliminating planned obsolescence. That's when consumer items are manufactured with the intention that they will quickly break and need to be replaced. Waste serving profit. Don Fitz, an environmental psychologist in St. Louis, Missouri, has written pieces for Monthly Review, Z Magazine, Green Social Thought, Telesur, and Counterpunch. He's on the editorial board of Green Social Thought and is on the National Committee of the Greens, Green Party USA. He's produced the show Green Time in conjunction with KNLC-TV in St. Louis for over 20 years. Stan Cox is a senior scientist at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. Before that, he was a wheat geneticist in the U.S. Department of Agriculture for 13 years. He's also a prolific environmental writer. His most recent book is How the World Breaks, Life and Catastrophe's Path from the Caribbean to Siberia, published by the New Press. His articles have appeared in a wide range of newspapers, and he continues to write about the intersection of environmental, political, and economic issues, most often for Al Jazeera English, Alternet, Counterpunch, and Green Social Thought. Dan Young begins with a description of House Resolution 109, the so-called Green New Deal, and then opens his discussion on overproduction with Don Fitz, who began fighting for social justice as a 17-year-old. In early February of 2019, freshman New York congressperson Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez introduced House Resolution 109, titled Recognizing the Duty of the Federal Government to Create a Green New Deal. Eighty-nine other Democratic congresspeople have signed on to co-sponsor the bill, which seeks to simultaneously turn the tide on American carbon emissions, while also uplifting millions from poverty and providing greater economic security nationwide. The concept of a Green New Deal dates back at least as far as 2008, 
when the United Nations Environment Program commissioned a report in response to what it said were global crises that year in the areas of food security, fuel, and financial markets. The Global Green New Deal report was released in 2009 for the UN Environment Program's Green Economy Initiative. In the ensuing decades, different proposals for a Green New Deal have been put out by green parties in Europe and the U.S., as well as by other environmental advocates. But many versions of the Green New Deal, including House Resolution 109, share a component that concerns some environmentalists. Most Green New Deal proposals are based on an assumption that economic and industrial production must significantly expand in both the U.S. and globally. House Resolution 109 calls for significant growth in U.S. manufacturing, and a frequently asked questions document about the bill put out by Congressperson Ocasio-Cortez's office says the goal of the Green New Deal is a, quote, gigantic expansion of our productive economy, end quote, which would also require, quote, building new industries at a rapid pace, end quote. Economic and industrial growth usually requires resource extraction and habitat loss, leading to mass extinction of organisms, the destruction of unique ecosystems, and the depletion of non-renewable resources. This is why some environmentalists are critical of economic and industrial growth, including the growth called for in the Green New Deal. Today I will talk about this situation with two environmental advocates and writers who have worked on these issues for years. I first discovered Don Fitz and his environmental writings when I was researching online for articles that contained critical analysis from an ecological and environmentalist perspective of Green New Deal proposals. I came upon a 2014 article by Don at the website Climate and Capitalism. It was titled, How Green is the Green New Deal? That article was also published by Counterpunch. The 2014 article by Don provides a history and critical analysis of different Green New Deal proposals developed in America and Europe since the start of the 2008 global recession. So thanks for speaking with me today, Don. Oh, uh, thanks a lot for having me on. So why don't you give a brief overview of how you came to be involved in environmental writing and activism? Well, I've been involved in social justice issues ever since I was 17 or 18, you know, first opposing uh, the Vietnam War then uh, supporting union rights, then against apartheid in South Africa and racism in the United States, all sorts of civil rights issues. And so it was just a natural for me when I started to hear about the Green Party to get involved and uh, get involved in things like stopping incinerators and stopping all sorts of uh, toxic production. So why don't you talk about how you came to write that 2014 article on how green is the Green New Deal and talk about what some of the key takeaways are from that article. For me, there's, there's one overriding issue that has really preoccupied my life for the last 20 years at least, and that is the fact that you can fight just about every environmental battle. There might be some that are exceptions, but the overwhelming majority, you can fight with a two-word slogan, and that is, stop it. I noticed that in one environmental issue I was involved with after another, there were some corporation that what we wanted them to do was to just stop what they were doing. And, and by the early 2000s, I realized that there's a problem with the overproduction of everything. You know, that uh, things are, it's not just that bad things are being produced, things are being produced to fall apart more rapidly. And I'm 70 years old, and so I can remember that a lot of things that I bought 
you know, in the 1960s and 1970s with, that would last basically forever. They're no longer manufactured. You know, electronic parts are designed to fall apart within a few months or at most a year or two of production. And so I realized that you, you can't produce all the components of cell phones and everything else and, and design them to go out of style and have all of these chemical elements that go into them and, and not be polluting the earth at the time that they're thrown away or dismantled or whatever. And, and so then when I heard about the Green New Deal, I started to read about it, and I realized that it's a program to expand production, not to decrease production. Let me interject here. When you talk about the Green New Deal that you heard about, and that's prior to this 2014 article you wrote, right? Where, what is the context of who was generating a Green New Deal at that point, and when, when was that point? Oh, okay, well, a lot of people act today act like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wrote the Green New Deal. And then some of the critics of that say, well, no, it was actually the Green Party of the U.S. which wrote the Green New Deal. And neither one of those is correct. This was the Green New Deal in the early 2000s was actually developed uh, by international financial policies uh, like the International Monetary Fund. And, and several other financial groups. And so it was the, the, the Green New Deal originated in Europe as a way to expand capitalism and expand production by producing environment, uh, things that were called environmental. Or, you know, they call, they call them environmental. Um, and so, I, you know, I realized that the Green New Deal as being adopted by the Green parties in Europe and then later adopted by the Green Party of the U.S. was not an environmental program at all. It was a very destructive program to expand production. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about the error of economic growth, even if it's green. Producer Dan Young speaks with Don Fitz, an environmental and social justice activist, about the overproduction of everything, not just the bad things. Was this something that was developed prior to the global recession starting in 2008 or after that? No, it was in 2008 that it was written as a UN plan for the Green New Deal. My understanding is that people realize that the traditional ways to expand production were not going to work anymore. And so they had to come up with new ways to expand production. And so they came up with the idea of a whole lot of, of painting everything green. And that's what it was. It was you know, there's, uh, environmentalism was rising very much in the early 2000s. And so they said, okay, we'll paint, paint everything green, call it green, and then we'll have a way to expand production. People often say, well, we need to increase production to increase jobs. Well, no. If you, if you look at the uh, U.S. from roughly uh, 1900 to 2000, there was a 300-fold increase, which I think would be like a 30,000% increase in production. And you didn't have, you know, a 300-fold increase in jobs. You just There was just a production of more and more stuff. And roughly the, the time that Woodrow Wilson was in office, a little bit after, between World War I and World War II, a lot of the big financial institutions and big corporations realize that for the first time in the history of the world, you could produce enough for everybody to have their basic needs met. And so there was a conscious design to start producing things that would fall apart so that they would have to be replaced. And of course, by, during World War II, it was, we were shifting over to where everybody had a car, as opposed to some people having a car. 
And so it was very easy to design cars that fall apart. And, and so that's basically what happened is, is the, an intentional desire to force the increased production because people already – the basics of life were already available for people uh, between the world wars. Through planned obsolescence, as they sometimes call it. Pl- planned obsolescence, and now it's absolutely massive. It's everywhere. So you would say that, from what you've seen of it, the Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez version is continuing on the green capitalist model of the Green New Deal. Oh, oh absolutely. The Green New Deal is, is, is basically a form of neoliberalism. And, of course, neoliberalism means that you don't solve problems by the government doing things or people you know, collectively solving problems. Neoliberalism is you turn over everything to private corporations. You, can't, you don't improve public schools. You turn the public schools over to, private, to charter schools to run them. You, know, you don't improve the post office. You destroy the post office by helping UPS and every other corporation you can cut in to the most profitable areas of, of the post office and everything else. Get rid of everything the government does. Well, Alexandria uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez's plan is to basically privatize uh, or, or turn everything over to the market for uh, improving the environment. That's ridiculous. I mean, the, the problem is, is that the economy is too massive, and they want to make it, the Green New Deal wants to make it even more massive. And that's not going to solve any sort of problem whatsoever. A lot of people would argue with you since a lot of this particular Green New Deal is about expanding government-run entitlements, social programs, um, and stuff like that. Well, it does, it does include some of those. But, I mean, when, when you're talking about how these things are going to happen, all of these things are going to be privatized. Um, I, I mean, if you, read, if, if you read different versions of the Green New Deal, like the one uh, by the Green Party, basically says we're, we're, we're going to expand energy but without nuclear power. But as soon as you start to read people who are part of the Democratic Party, one of the big problems is that they, they talk about clean energy or renewable energy, and what are they, what's included in that? And, and that's included a, a nuclear power, it's included waste incineration, and it's called waste to energy, it includes medical incineration, it includes wood burning, it includes dams. All of these things are incredibly environmentally destructive. Basically, what we need to do to deal with energy is to realize there needs to be a lot less production, there needs to be production of necessities and things that last. We need to produce things that people actually need to have a better life. And we, we need to do that with – and that's the way to have a lot less energy. And, and that's what the – the Green New Deal never, ever says we will use less energy. It's just we want to use green energy. It's time for a break. This is the tallest man on earth, a.k.a. Christian Matson, with Shallow Grave. When we come back, Don Fitz says the Green New Deal requires an expansion of production, exactly the wrong direction to go in now. Stay with us for more Interchange on WFHB. See the ripples on the water As I throw pebbles in the pond Let the sky go past the surface Empty my pockets filled with stones My pockets filled with stones
darkness of the sailor As I will scratch his deep blue floor Already in my years of bad luck Oh, I broke his mirror long before When I dive into the water I've raised the bottom to be safe It's just a shallow grave Welcome back to Interchange. Independent producer and Interchange contributor Dan Young is our host. Our show today asks the question, is green growth malignant? His guest for this segment is Don Fitz, a critic of the Green New Deal, who suggests that besides reducing all production and energy consumption, there will need to be drastic social reforms as well. Found a season what's claimed healthy, oh, I need the guidance of the laws. When I dive into the world, so the idea that the idea that you have of a different perhaps green new deal that would uh be about providing a better life for everyone or maybe a decent if stripped down uh materially stripped down life for everyone how would that uh, while decreasing energy and decreasing environmental footprint what would how would you outline the major social reforms you think, political reforms you think would need to lead to that? Well, the first thing I would advocate is a, uh, a shorter work week, because obviously a, a lot of the production that goes into the Green New Deal, is, they say we, it's needed to give people jobs. I'd say, no, we, we, if people don't have jobs, we need to have a shorter work week. The other thing is that unions really need to be a part of this, because every time that there's been a shorter work week gained, what happens is that it's called capitalism intensifying the labor process. And what this means is that you were just, you're forced to work harder at the job and produce more stuff in a brief amount of time. A good example is teachers. They, they would say, oh, sure, we'll give you a, a shorter work week, and every teacher will have more kids in the classroom. <laughs> and that, no, uh, we, we need to deal with any sort of unemployment problems by having a shorter work week with zero intensification of labor. That's not going to happen by business having a good heart. That's going to happen by strong unions uh, fighting for that. The other thing that we do need a government for, government intervening a lot, is to, is to deal with production standards. We have some safety standards, which, of course, every administration likes to weaken and water down, but we really need to have standards where everything is produced to a maximum life expectancy as possible. You know, it's ridiculous for people to go out and get a new car every five years. Cars should last for like uh, well over 200,000 miles. And the, the other thing the government needs to do in cooperation, the federal government, the international government, in cooperation with communities, is to stop the things that we don't need and, and create the conditions for those not needing. Like every community in the United States can be turned into a social community where people have the things which they need without driving a car. Our cars should be reduced at a maximum of 20% of the trips that people are currently making. I mean, what's, what's happened in an automobile economy, well, I grew up when there were many fewer cars. I mean, like right now, everybody in the family has to have, every person over 18 needs to have a car to get by. We need to bring back having local stores where people buy things that are within walking or bicycling distance. And so there needs to be a massive urban redesign. This is different from the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal doesn't want urban 
redesign of existing buildings. It wants to build new buildings. It doesn't advocate fewer cars on the road. It wants to have even more cars on the road by having that are all run with electricity, as if as if that's an improvement, and that's that's no improvement. So I mean, you can come up with example after example of how the Green New Deal contradicts the, what we, the direction the economy really needs to go in in order to have a better quality of life while using less energy. It seems like uh, the document, a lot of it's just sort of a wish list. Basically, that wish list is a good wish list. It's just the Green New Deal won't get us there. Yeah. and then But then the underlying idea of how they're going to get there is through a massive increase in production. Right which it's unclear if that's even possible to achieve. And even if they were actually able to meet their carbon reduction goals while doing this, this would still have a major, major impacts in terms of, you know, these other issues, loss of arable land, loss of, loss of water, the, the depletion of other resources. Yeah, well, first of all, everything that you've said about environmental destruction is as absolutely true. Because whether you produce a car, which is a gasoline car, or you produce a car which is an electric car, it takes massive amount of water to produce those component parts of the car. And I don't have how many tens of thousands of gallons it takes just to produce one car, but we already have rivers in the United States and in other parts of the world where they don't even reach the ocean or the seas anymore because the water is taken out. The idea that you can double, triple, or increase a thousand-fold the amount of car production and not influence water is just that's not taking into account anything. The other thing about increasing production, every time you increase production, you increase species extinction. And yeah, climate change is a real crisis, but so is species extinction. When you destroy the species of the earth, it's only a matter of time before man is the species who's extinguished. What you're reading in these Green New Deals, can they actually really have a, a, an effect on carbon even while they're still pushing disaster down the road or changing what kind of disaster will eventually come environmentally? Like, can they even work for carbon? No, no that's, that, that's not, that's not going to happen. But I, I mean, there uh, is uh, some articles who argue that you can go to a completely uh, carbon-free economy within 10 or 15 years. First of all, if you do that, if that's your goal, the only way you can recognize that as a goal is to maintain the current class distinctions inside of the United States and maintain the class distinction between the rich countries and the poor countries of the world. Because if you, if you were to double the production in the United States just to eliminate class distinctions, that would be enormous. The United States, with 5% of the world's population, has 20% of the world's consumption. 5% of population, 20% consumption. So if you're going to bring up the levels of consumption in Latin America, Africa, and Asia to the U.S., you're going to then multiply production by another factor of five. Well, they don't, they don't take these, these into account. Now, now, another thing, so what happens if we were to get rid of fossil fuel production? The U.S. and Europe would immediately go into the Sahara Desert to blanket the whole thing with, with sun farms. Any countries who live there would find that the red, white, and blue army, you know, for oil production marches out, and then the green army for solar production marches in, the same thing with wind production. The Green New Deal, since it's done in a neoliberal framework, in, 
and wants to have corporations making money off of all of this, it's inevitable that were it to be carried out, it would just help the U.S. military be used for a different purpose than it's being used today. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Dan Young is our host tonight, and the show asks the question, is green growth malignant? In this segment, Dan's guest is Don Fitz, who has produced Green Time, a television show on KNLC-TV in St. Louis for 20 years, who says the U.S. should lead the way by producing fewer and better things, not expanding green production. There was a this F frequently asked questions document that was put out and then retracted by uh, Cor- Alexander Ocasio-Cortez's office related to the Green New Deal. It was very extremely emphatic about massive growth, but also about these ideas of like comparing it. It's it kept being compared to military buildups for World War II and for the to the space race, and and it's kind of like, well, is this a competition? Is this a, the world's coming together to deal with a world problem, or is this a thing, uh, a competition of production between countries, and then possibly to get resources for that production between countries? Well, yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, as I read some of the things that people most enthusiastic about the Green New Deal uh, with Alexandria uh, Ocasio Cortez. It's, it's always that we need to build things up, just like we, like you said, World War II or the space race, and so they they want to upgrade to replace every building uh, in the U.S. for state-of-the-art energy. Well, that, I don't know if these people are aware of it, but there's nothing that uses more energy than cement and steel. These are incredibly energy-intensive productions, and so when you start talking about building large quantities of new buildings. You're, you really got problems because this is going to increase fossil fuels enormously. They want to say that they, that they will massively expand electric vehicle manufacturing. That gets back exactly to what I said about vehicle, uh, you know, that we need to use fewer cars. We need to be cutting back on cars, not to, not to be producing more cars. And they want to expand uh, mass transportation, now, now the thing of it, a bus and a tr- buses and trains are less destructive than cars, but again, they're not should not be the major part of the solution. The major part of the solution should, should be redesigning cities, not rebuilding cities, redesigning them. Uh, like right, I live in St. Louis, and there's little places all over St. Louis that used to be storefronts 50 and 75 years ago that have been converted for some other sort of use. Those buildings could be converted again with minimum environmental impact to be a local grocery store. When I was a kid growing up in the 1950s in Houston, my mom would always give me a list and say, okay, you ride your bicycle down to the store and you pick these up. Okay, there's no reason why 90% or more of Americans should not be able to ride a bicycle to a grocery store or walk to a grocery store to get to, to get what they need. So... I believe that America should lead the world, but not lead the world in producing more stuff, but lead the world in saying we can show how we can reduce inequality in this country and how we can improve people's lives with producing fewer things, but producing better things that last a longer time and are compatible with the environment. Do you have hope that there is the, that there could be the political and social will for Americans to overall reduce resource usage? Yeah, I, I, I think that is very possible because, like us, you know, when you ask me, what, where should we start? 
we can start with a shorter work week. And if we improve the quality, I mean, if you ask people, do you want to live life with less stuff or more stuff? Overwhelming majority of people are going to say, I want more stuff, you know, because they're constantly told, you know, you can get, you have a better, and, and it's like a drug addiction. You know, you, you get a, a quick fix, you know, for a few minutes, maybe a few hours, maybe a few days, and then, then you're looking for something else. But the thing is, if you offer people the choice, do you want a shorter work week or an accumulation of objects? Many people will choose the shorter work week. That's what people want. People want more free time. They want more time to be with their friends and their family. That's the way we need to win people over to this, to say we do not all need to be working frantically at a minimum of 40 hours a week, but sometimes with two jobs with 60 or more hours a week, you know, just so we can barely keep up, just so we can, uh, you know, uh, put somebody else out of a job who can't get two jobs like I do, you know, just so I can get barely enough to have medical insurance. I can actually have the things that I need and, and work a lot fewer hours. I think with that is the, the point that we really need to start with, you know, that we do not need to be overworking ourselves into a frenzy. I've set the rain to be cold and hard. I've set the sun. It's time for another break. This is Into the Stream by the Tallest Man on Earth. When we return, Dan Young talks to Stan Cox, a plant geneticist at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, and a prolific environmental writer who argues against the technological fundamentalism of the Green New Deal. We will lie in sheets and turn around All their limit signs and redirect Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show today asks, is green growth malignant? Interchange contributor Dan Young now welcomes Stan Cox, author most recently of How the World Breaks, Life and Catastrophe's Path from the Caribbean to Siberia, published by the New Press. Cox is critical of the technological fundamentalism of the Green New Deal, as it will require an energy-intensive manufacturing boom without the immediate reduction of energy use in other sectors to offset this. When we kill the sound and when the scream, it's all dark and Stan Cox works as a plant breeder and geneticist at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. The Land Institute is dedicated to developing less ecologically destructive alternatives to current agriculture practices. Stan Cox works for the Land Institute developing perennial sorghum. But he also is a prolific environmental writer. Stan has had articles published in the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and at Al Jazeera. He has also written for the National Progressive Publications Counterpunch and Alternate. Stan has also authored or co-authored three books, the most recent of which was How the World Breaks, Life in Catastrophe's Path from the Caribbean to Siberia. 
I first discovered Stan Cox and his environmental writings when I was researching online looking for critical analysis of Green New Deal proposals based on ecology and environmentalism. I came upon an article by Stan, which was originally published at the website Green Social Thought and later republished by Counterpunch. The article was titled, That Green Growth at the Heart of the Green New Deal? It's Malignant. So thanks so much for speaking with me today, Stan. Good to be with you today, Dan. Uh, How did you come to be both a plant breeder and an environmental writer? Well, I I worked for the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture and Agriculture Research Service for 13 years as a uh, research geneticist. And the last few years of that job was when the world was waking up to the reality of greenhouse warming. And then I moved to the Land Institute in 2000, and I have been there since then. The the Land Institute had long had a tradition of critiquing growth and uh, ecological overshoot and uh, technological fundamentalism, et et cetera. And so in the uh, time that I wasn't in in the field or in the greenhouse, I um, was working on writing and about six years ago, I published a book on rationing called Any Way You Slice It, The Past, Present, and Future of Rationing. And I addressed the rationing of uh, food, water, medical care, and uh, energy or carbon emissions. I was making the case that we not only have to replace fossil fuel with renewable energy, but when, when we do that, we're going to be living in a world that has to run on much uh, lower energy level. Uh, we cannot completely replace the bonanza that we've had with uh, oil, gas, and coal um, with renewable energy, and that there will have to be um, some plan to um, deal with that. Um, and uh, probably the best one at the time, and, and still probably the, the best idea for that, it's something called tradable energy quotas um, uh, that was developed in the uh, United Kingdom. has been debated there in Parliament, and et cetera. But it, it, it involves uh, capping uh, fossil fuel use, a hard cap, no, no cap and trade, nothing like that, no uh, um, release valves, and then dealing with uh, uh, having... Uh, fair shares of energy for uh, people and, and businesses, et cetera. Why don't you say a little more about a worldview based on the idea of infinite economic growth and the, as you called it, ecological overshoot and, and actually technological fundamentalism is particularly a term that probably a lot of people <laughs> haven't heard, actually, uh, but I like it. And I've never heard it before either, but I, th- I think I know what it means. But yeah, why don't you talk about that kind of mindset versus the kind of mindset that you are promoting? Well, it it should be something that is discussed as obvious to everyone that there's no such thing as infinite growth for any organism or population or ecosystem, anything, that there are ecological limits. And the, the image that's often used is when the bacteria get to the edge of the Petri dish, it's not going to grow anymore. And economies are the goal of 
present-day economies is uh, infinite growth. That in, with capitalism, if there is no growth, it, it cannot function. So what what we're trying to do, and in the Green New Deal is another case of that, is to try to pull back within ecological boundaries, but let the economy continue to grow as rapidly as possible. And that that just it can't happen. They, they talk about decarbonization of the economy, getting more GDP out of a given amount of uh, uh, carbon that's put into the atmosphere. And that, that's where the technological fundamentalism comes in. It, uh, we don't know how, but we know that we, we're, we're going to come up with miraculous technologies that are going to be able to supply growing incomes, growing wealth for the wealthy, growing incomes for the not wealthy without increasing our carbon output, in fact, with decreasing it. But there are no such technologies uh, available, and to simply trust that they will be invented would, uh, would I think, be foolhardy. The times we have seen deep reductions in greenhouse emissions uh, throughout history have always been times of economic depression, as after the fall of the Soviet Union during our Great Recession of the past decade. That's one way to reduce emissions. We don't want to do that. We need to do it in an orderly, fair way so that uh, people don't suffer. This is Interchange on WFHB. Dan Young is our host for this show. Is green growth malignant? Dan's guest is Stan Cox, author of Any Way You Slice It, The Past, Present, and Future of Rationing, published by the New Press. He stresses the disconnect in how the Green New Deal increases energy use in producing green technologies without the necessity of drastic energy reduction in all other facets of life. So, yeah, why don't you flesh out more of what that you think that orderly fair way might look like? First, the, the situation that we're in that the um, Green New Deal isn't really addressing is uh, because what they're talking about is a need for rapid growth in renewable energy generation capacity, which is absolutely needed. That's where we do need growth. And, but then extrapolating that to the economy as a whole. But the reality that we're facing is that the reduction in a very deep and rapid reduction in greenhouse emissions will mean that we need to reduce our fossil fuel burning and fossil fuel electric uh, capacity much faster than it's possible for the renewable energy to grow, to replace it. Um, that means that we're, we're facing a, a reduced energy supply if we really are uh, serious about uh, keeping fossil fuels in the ground. So there's going to be less energy available, which means there's not going to be enough to launch into this uh, manufacturing boom that they're talking about. And good part of our energy and resources are going to have to be walled off for building up of the renewable energy capacity, which is necessary, which will further reduce the pool of uh, energy that we have to work with to run the rest of the economy. So then that means we're going to be manufacturing less, traveling less, 
etc. There's uh, really no way around it. The main concern then will have to be in making sure it's the production of wasteful and superfluous products that's reduced and that if the production that's aimed at meeting human needs for everyone is maintained and emphasized and those resources are shared fairly. It seems like that even if they found a way to they're, they're, develop new technologies that would allow them to generate the same amount of energy for the uh, an American or Western European or European lifestyle while switching off from fossil fuels, even if that was possible, you're still talking about a consum- product consumption lifestyle that uses a huge amount of resources of other kinds that seems like if it continues to grow, you're still headed for maybe more distant collapse down the road. Yeah. And there are, uh, you see estimates that if we do were to try to replace, to generate the same amount of um, energy with wind and solar that we, we do now, uh, globally, the quantities of um, uh, copper and uh, some other minerals that would be um, required would, um, it's not clear that there are even reserves enough in the ground to uh, to support those things. Oh my God, okay. And, but there are, there are still these analyses we've seen out there um, that are claiming to uh, show a strategy by which we could replace 100% of current and growing energy demand entirely with uh, renewable sources. And um, I've um, written before on the, um, based on published critiques of those plans, uh, on all of the problems that they have and and that this 100% renewable dream for 100% of demand is um, is a kind of a cornucopian uh, uh, pipe dream that it the these predictions are all based on best case scenario assumptions uh, uh, envisioning um, these uh, technologies that are only speculative and have never been tried on any but the smallest scale um, very unrealistic improvements in, in efficiency of everything, and they calculate the potential for wind and, and solar uh, generation over the Earth's surface wrong. So there, and, and the worst thing about these, um, these plans is that they <clears throat> are assuming that the global energy uh, inequality that we see today, where some of us have access to pretty much unlimited energy and other people are um, living on much less energy than they need to survive, that that inequality will stay there and we'll we'll just convert from fossil fuel to renewable energy rather than redistribute access to energy. (music) 
It's time for our final break. This is Where Do My Bluebirds Fly by Christian Matson, performing as the tallest man on earth. When we return to Is Green Growth Malignant, we confront the fact that the greatest issue in all of this might be that without the elimination of modern industrial and technological societies, ecological and environmental devastation will continue regardless of climate mitigation. Stay with us. Oh, I know you start to set up, baby, of all the leaves up in the ground. And I know our song is all but healthy, as as he dry leaves falling down. Oh, with all this fever in my mind, I could drown in your kerosene eyes, or oh, just a riddle in the sky. Today, independent producer Dan Young has been asking the question, is green growth malignant? In our final segment, Stan Cox, author of How the World Breaks, Life in Catastrophe's Path from the Caribbean to Siberia, confronts the fact that even if we stop our carbon emissions cold, there are many other planetary boundaries we're in danger of crossing that might lead to human species extinction. Oh, I know you stroke your feathers, baby, upon the ghosts along my trail. It seems like there's a lot of other uh, problems that demand uh, looking seriously at the amount of resource usage beyond fossil fuels. The anthropogenic mass extinction event, the human-induced mass extinction event that's going on right now is also being caused by habitat destruction on a massive scale. It's And the... Uh, the loss of arable land, the loss of uh, clean, drinkable water, these things are not entirely generated by global warming, and which global warming will continue even if they were to do the best-case scenario changeover. Yeah, it's a, that, that's an excellent point. We could completely eliminate our fossil fuel use, and if we could then continue running our societies as we do now entirely on renewable energy, we would still be causing all of the, the uh, kinds of problems you just mentioned, in, including um, extinctions, including the imbalance of uh, nitrogen in the, in the atmosphere, water, and, and soil that we have um, created through agriculture and industry. There are these uh, so-called nine planetary boundaries uh, like that that we're in danger of crossing all of them, fresh water availability and so forth. And, and we could easily keep um, transgressing those boundaries um, using renewable energy. So th th that's why its growth 
and not fossil fuels that um, is the, the fundamental problem here. So in the non-binding House resolution uh, recently brought forward by various Democrats that's being referred to as the Green New Deal, there are several places it refers to a goal of major economic and industrial growth. Uh, It calls for exporting this model abroad by promoting the international exchange of technology, expertise, products, funding, and services. And then there's this frequently asked questions document that had a lot more very emphatic references to a goal of massive economic and industrial development, and even possibly to a potential international competition to spur such development. Even if it was feasible, it sounds terrible for the environment, uh, certainly. But uh, so I guess, yeah, do you have uh, any more thoughts about this? Well, yes, you're you're uh, following that to its logical conclusion, which um, would be be just that uh, race, uh, race to the, uh, I don't know, the top or the bottom among all the countries. People talking about what we need to do in this situation, as this document did, they talk about going to the moon and others may refer to the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb. Oh my God. Those are technical and relatively, as complex as they were, they're still relatively simple compared with the situation we face now, which is that our lives and economies have to be transformed. And even when they use World War II as the example, which it does serve as a kind of example, because there, too, we have a situation where one part of the economy had to be walled off, in this case, for um, war and armaments uh, production. And then the rest of the economy had to live on what was left. But when they talk about World War II, as uh, Bill McKibben and others have written about it, they focus only on the war production side and, and being the analogy to building up renewable energy and how we marshaled our productive forces and and you know, achieved this uh, great amount of production and so forth and and that's a fair comparison um but they well it would be a fair it's a fair comparison if they're talking about m- taking resources walling them off and marshaling them to change out the infrastructure from fossil fuels to renewables is that that's is that the part that's the fair comparison right yeah that so that's fine but they they ignore the the other side of it that the result of that was that we had to for civilian production for the rest of the economy we had to reduce the amount of stuff that was being produced or in, in the case of food tried to increase it and then um, what, what was there? There was something called the War Production Board that diverted resources to products or industries that were needed, and they um, you know, shut down industries that um, were producing unnecessary goods. Then that resulted in in shortages of some stuff, and then uh, rationing was was required, and so that we would also be facing that uh, that kind of problem in in a world where we're voluntarily cutting back on our access to resources while at the same time building up new resources and all of that has to take place as as they keep saying with within the next decade or two so uh, we can't wait around until all the um 
renewable infrastructure is built up and then then start um, eliminating fossil fuels. We, we've got to do it at the same time. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment of Is Green Growth Malignant? Producer Dan Young speaks with author and plant geneticist Stan Cox about the utter necessity to transform our lives and economies for any chance at avoiding species extinction. From what's been put out about this Green New Deal, what do you like about it? And we've already talked about what else besides what we've talked about do you dislike? What Do you feel it could be? This could somehow be the jumping off point for something great or that it all really needs to be rethought? Well, I'm told that in the discussions that uh, formulated this initial version of the Green New Deal, that uh, any talk uh, about uh, ensuring what I've been talking about, sufficiency for everyone and excess for nobody, that uh, any talk of that that kind of thing was shut out or any talk about controlling what we produce and and so forth. Um, And ignoring uh, that part of it, I think, and and just allowing reckless growth to continue, they're eventually going to fall back on nuclear power. And that's my um, biggest fear. But uh, that said, with the the right attacking the Green New Deal is going too far, I think we do have to defend it, but to say what parts of it we we are defending. And I think we need to support its efforts to provide economic security to the now insecure majority, to redistribute economic power, about eradicating racism and all forms of oppression, and to build renewable energy capacity, reduce energy waste through efficiency, all all of those things we should be defending, but at the same time stressing that as this Green New Deal evolves, it's got to go much farther and that it and all of that needs to be pushed quickly and that we have to be letting go of these dreams of green growth. Do you feel that if they fell back on nuclear power that they could meet their goals, carbon-wise? Well, yeah, the trouble with building up uh, nuclear power is that, like renewable power, all of the, the energy expenditure and the emissions generated to build it up come up front while, while it's being constructed. And this would be to, to generate that much nuclear electricity would be a, a huge construction project and mining and uh, waste disposal, all of these things. And all of that would be coming in the next couple of decades, right at the time when we need to be reducing emissions. Now, of course, it'll, it's going to generate emissions to build up renewable energy as well, but not nearly as much. But then there are all the other dangers of nuclear energy, and to just go on a building spree is, I, I think, a, a very reckless. It, and then there is what eventually come. We, we have been through concerns about peak oil. There eventually would come a, a peak uranium problem, and the 
ecological consequences of, of uh, nuclear energy, it would not be worth it. We'd be much better off just living with less energy. It also doesn't uh, deal with, you know, if production of everything else continues based on uranium uh, and nuclear energy, the uh, the continued conversion, habitat loss, the continued loss of arable soil, the continued loss of drinkable water, especially if, if you see more American suburban living expanding to other parts of the world that don't have it yet, all powered by nuclear power. <laughs> right. And that uh, concern, which I'm glad you brought up again, uh, for all these other problems setting aside uh, greenhouse warming, we, we have to keep focused on that, that it's not all just about energy. And this is a concern even with the renewable energy buildup, because um, there are um, researchers, especially some in Australia, who've been pointing out that if we were to attempt to supply as much energy as we use now with renewable energy, we would be pressing wind and solar farms into more and more ecologically fragile areas and that there there probably, we we would hope anyway, be such popular outrage at that, that that would be another limit on the uh, the amount of energy we'd be able to produce. All right. Well, I'm think I'm going to wrap up. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about anything we've covered? Uh, one thing that I've uh, been trying to emphasize: you know, if the Green New Deal, if it comes law in its its current form, that is only going to be after we wage a protracted politically bloody struggle. But if it succeeds, if it's in its current form, we're going to find that it's not stopping global warming. So if if we're going to wage this fight, then we better fight for a transformation that actually has a, a chance of preventing catastrophic warming. <laughs> That's our show. We'll close with The Blizzard's Never Seen the Desert Sands, a final cut from The Tallest Man on Earth off of the 2008 album Shallow Grave. Thanks to producer Dan Young for bringing the work of Don Fitz and Stan Cox to our attention, both of whom have been working for decades to save the world from human economic systems and the myth that economies are only healthy if they're constantly growing. We'll share multiple links to their writing on the Interchange webpage. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. And the frightened little choirs, they will sing. They will tremble on their voices like it's from another shore. The frightened little choirs, they will sing.